right, everybody, welcome to church. We're glad that you're here today. And if it is your first time, uh, we hope you have a second time and a third time. And we believe not only in the church, but with the life of Christ, it keeps getting better and better and better. We invite you into that journey. Uh, but I am excited to kind of put the exclamation point, if you will, on this series that we've been in. Today is the finale of a series we're calling Don't Get It Twisted. And you got to kind of say it with a little bit of swag, like don't get it twisted. Because we know the devil is trying to twist the truth in our life. And I don't know what you believe about the devil, but if you don't believe in him, that doesn't make him less real. And that doesn't make uh, the truth of him attacking your life and coming at you any less significant. We have to be aware. We don't give him glory. He's a defeated foe. Come on, say amen right there. But we do need to be aware of his schemes and tactics. And so one of the ways we've seen him attack us the most is in the area of relationships, right? In our friendships, like creating discord and just a little, little beef. You've heard that? Like, uh, we're beefing, you know. Oh, we, oh there's a little, little riff. There's a little, little tension in the home. So we talked about in our friendships, um, in our marriages. I mean, I know nobody has any tension in their marriages here. Uh, we're a perfect church, okay? Um, you can laugh because that's not true. Um, but, but we are opening our hearts up to those areas and just facing the facts of what we're going through as believers or if we're making that decision if we'll follow Christ, the things we're going through, but also in the area of family, which involves marriage. But I want to take it a step further from last week where we talked about marriage and talk about the family dynamic. Now, let me give you the theme verse of this uh, entire series because it's what Jesus said was the personality description of the devil. So if you were ever to see a, a persona uh, personified of the enemy, what is he like? Who is he? Well, Jesus in John 8 told us very clearly, he's a murderer. As a matter of fact, he's been that way since the beginning. He's got murderous plans, murderous thoughts. He wants to take you out. And it says he's not holding to any truth. Well, that's kind of hard to do when there's no truth in you. The Bible says there's a way that seems right, but in the end leads to death. And this is how he traps us is we think that what we're doing, what we're saying, where we're going, how we're living our lives at times, it seems right. Culture endorses it. Maybe nobody's telling us this is not the best for you. But in the end, it leads to destruction. And I'm a pastor. And so my primary responsibility is to help point us all to Jesus. Like, like I'm not Jesus in no sense. I'm glad my wife's not in here. She'd be like, amen. I'm like, but I'm a tour guide, and if you would let me, I'd like to be your spiritual tour guide today, pointing us all to Christ, because the enemy is trying to get us to take a different tour. He's trying to get us to go down the path of things that seem right, but in the end, do not benefit us, and they actually lead to death, emotional death, spiritual death, could be physical death. There's things that aren't good for us that the enemy will portray as good. That's how he twists the truth. That's why we've got the name of the series, because he doesn't just blatantly lie to you. He takes a truth, and he twists it. And so we're here to say, along with the body of Christ, don't get it twisted. Because when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. So I want to talk about the family today, and I want to talk about the first institution God created. He didn't create a lot of them. Uh, he created the local church. That's his plan for reaching humanity, that we would all find our place in the body of Christ and that we would function as the body of Christ, with Christ at the head, and that we would uh, help reconcile his lost children back to him. That's, that's the mission. The mission is not changing, and you're needed for the mission. Okay, you can be a part of that 
if you'd like, I would suggest it as a way to live the best life you can live this side of heaven. But the first institution, even before the local church, Jesus created marriage between a man and a woman. And the Bible tells us that in Genesis. And if it's ever been under attack, the family unit, the marriage, according to the Bible, is under attack. I was reading uh, some statistics, as I like to do, just to try and be informed of what's going on. Of course, the Bible is our guide, but we also use everything else as a tool to just have better context of the times we're living in so that we'll know how to act, live, behave, and what the mission is at the time of hand. But Gen Z is a generation that's ages 12 through 27. They're in our church. More importantly, they're in our homes, which, by the way, we have them one hour a week. You have them the other 167 hours a week. So we're here to partner with you, but we can't be you. Now, we're going to do everything we can as a local church to invest in them. And we're radical about it. We're committed to it. We believe they're not just somebody that we're just caring for so that you can receive service. No, we're speaking a biblical future over their life. We're investing in them in dynamic and intentional ways. But Gen Z is ages 12 through 27. And then right behind Gen Z is Generation Alpha, 11 and under which, oh, by the way, now comprises of about 30% of the population. So the largest percentage population alive today, they've even exceeded the boomers. And there's some interesting facts about them. Uh, first would be they're screenagers. Okay, we call them? I thought that was funny. Okay, you, come on, laugh at my jokes. We're going to be eating lunch way faster. Okay, thank you, thank you. But they're screenagers, so much so, by the time they're 18, it is estimated they would have had 30,000 plus hours in front of a screen. So much so, those ages 10 to 14 are spending on average nine hours a day in front of one, and those 14 to 18 are about seven and a half hours in front of one. So much so, by the time they're 18, they would have spent 30% of their life in front of a screen. We've got to be aware of this. Also, we see about those two generations is though they're the most populous, they are the most isolated. Statistically, they're the most depressed, the most anxious. And watch this. This is scary. 20% of this generation, both Gen, and Gen Z and Alpha, have seriously considered suicide. It's a big deal. 59% of the generation uses Instagram, IG, as their primary source of information. So you've got other people creating narratives that your kid is embracing and that your kid is believing. 60% of the generation, if something doesn't change, are, are expected to leave the church. Like six out of 10 kids, once they leave your house, they're leaving the church. Two of the three, 66% of the 60%, will become an atheist. So they don't leave the church, they're leaving God. Why? They're not seeing authenticity. They're not seeing parents and families and people live the life. Not a perfect life, you can't live one. But really going on the journey of being different. And not just using talk to communicate you're different, but by our actions. Now, these statistics are sad, but I am not sad about this generation. I believe they're the greatest generation that God has purposed for such a time as this. 
I'm positive about this generation. I believe in this generation. We are making ourselves available to this generation because if they ever catch the call of God on their life, if they ever catch that before the foundations of the world, he chose them and knew them and purposed them and formed them perfectly in their mother's womb, they will change the planet and they will populate heaven and plunder hell on the way. Somebody say amen. It's why we invest in Palm City Kids. You have grow teams sacrificing. They're not here for a service. They're here for two. They're worshiping one and serving one. Why? Because they want to burn their Sunday? No, they believe in the generation. They know their life is not their own. They're living sacrificially so that others can receive and we can turn these statistics around. I'm so thankful for our Palm City students. Once they leave uh, the fifth grade, they enter into a, a window of our student ministry and we're investing in them we're blessing them on the first and third Sundays of the month they have a city group at someone's house that has been background checked and every leader in the student ministry has been background checked because we are fighting for our families we are protecting our kids but we are very intentional about getting them in spaces where we can give them the narrative of heaven the narrative of destiny the narrative of purpose and a plan that God has for their life we're very intentional about it so much so in June we're going to take the high schoolers to a conference. You can sign up today. We just opened registration. In July, we're going to take the junior high on a retreat. And we're going to put them in atmospheres of God's presence and worship so that they don't have to be told they can be this and that. They can be sons and daughters of the Most High God. They can be pastors and leaders and faithful wives and integrous men. And they can be governors and mayors. And they can rule in righteousness. And they can live countercultural. No matter what culture says they are, they can be who God says they've been. They could be. And so I want to share a verse. It's a verse out of Nehemiah 4. And before I share it, I just want you to know that I believe and we believe they want us to fight for them. Now, if you have one of these in your home, you're like, I, I, don't, I don't think they do want us to. <laughs> but don't let the appearance make you believe they don't want you fighting and advocating for their soul. Don't let how they perceive the moment allow you to believe that they don't want you to speak a biblical future over their life. They want us. They need us. And we're here to fight for them. And as long as I'm the pastor of this church, which I hope is until I go to heaven or heaven comes and gets us all, right? That we are going to fight for a generation. And we see in Nehemiah 4 that Nehemiah bringing the Israelites out of captivity. They've been in bondage which our young people are in. They've been in this, uh, not physical bondage, but spiritual bondage and emotional bondage. And Nehemiah was a leader who came back to the place God had for his people, and it was desolate, and it was in ruins. And Nehemiah didn't see it as it was. He saw it as it could be. And he says, we're going to rebuild this city. And, and, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do it in a godly way. And we're going to create something out of nothing. We pick it up in Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah said, after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families. Fight people on Facebook. Nope, doesn't say that. Fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. I love that Nehemiah got a picture of what he physically was going to do 
And I believe today we will only physically do it, but we've got to spiritually do it. We've got to emotionally do it. We've got to commit ourselves heart and soul. And as he looked things over, I'm trying to get us to open our eyes to the reality. To stand up as Nehemiah did. He took a stand and he opened his mouth. No longer in our homes can we be quiet while culture is chirping a narrative that God did not create for our children. We have to open our mouths and speak the word of the Lord. Well, I don't know the Bible that well. Find a verse and align it with God. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be a theologian. But you do have to take responsibility. And I have to take responsibility. That we open our eyes. Don't be blind to it. That we take a stand. We speak up. We have no fear because the enemy's a defeated foe. And though he mounts an attack, God will raise a standard against him. And we will fight for our families in Jesus' name. I said in Jesus' name. Okay, that's what we're going to do. We're closing this series today. And I just want to bring our awareness to some things so that we can have a better understanding of the schemes of the enemy. He was a murderer from the beginning. Isn't that what Jesus said? Okay, so let's go to the beginning and watch how he played out his character. So we have in Genesis 1 and 2 the creation story. God God created uh, the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested. Who wants a Sunday nap right now? Come on, (laughs) praise the Lord. I feel that anointing. Oh, Lord Jesus, I'm out, you know, in my mind because I've got a busy afternoon. I'm not out. But he created the heavens and the earth. On the seventh day he rested. Part of that creation was he made male and he made female, and he said, you guys should hang out. Y'all, won't y'all get married? That was the first institution God created. But in Genesis chapter 3, we see the fall of humanity, where we got prideful, and we didn't trust God anymore. I don't think he'll supply my needs. I don't think he's going to nourish me, and that apple looks like it's going to be exactly what I need in this moment. And they took the bait, and in enters sin in humanity. Well, God speaks directly to the serpent, the devil, In Genesis 3, after that fall, and let me show you this verse in verse 15. He said, he spoke a prophetic curse over him. He said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. Oh, I love the promise right there. I almost called this this message devil crushers. Come on, that's a little aggressive, but, um, you know, I liked it. And you will strike his heel. Let's look at, that's the first book of the Old Testament. Let's look at the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 2. Mind you, this is where God says the words, I hate divorce, which people have been like, you know, used for condemnation. Well, let me, God hates divorce because he loves you. And he hates for you to go through what divorce does to you. But it's not just about you, mom and dad. That although he hates what you'll go through emotionally and spiritually in every way if you experience divorce, because he hates the results of it, he hates what it does to the children. Because God, and what does the one God seek? What does God want from your marriage? Is it just bliss? Is it a picture of heaven? All the above. But God wants godly offspring. So be on your guard. Like you need to, that's, the pl- that's his plan. And it's been the plan from the beginning, and it's the plan today, and until Jesus comes back or we go to him, it'll be the plan to the end of time. So we got to be on our guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of our youth. The word offspring in the Hebrew, which your Old Testament is written in, is simply the word seed. And if you know anything about seed, seed has potential. 
It's not fully developed, but it has the potential of developing into something fully. If you take a seed of an oak tree, it doesn't look like an oak tree, but over time, if it's put in good soil and cultivated good environments, and it's loved on and has the right time in the right conditions, it'll grow to be a strong oak tree. And what the enemy is not scared of our little kids, he's scared of who they could be. He's scared of the potential that they have, and he's been trying to take out the kids from the beginning of the time. We see in Exodus chapter 1, the, the, the enemy knew that there was a deliverer among the people. He doesn't know the future, but he knows that God's moving, and he tries to do things to stop what God's trying to do, although he doesn't know what God's trying to do, but he knows this. He uses young people. That's why the stages have young people. They're too young to sing. Mm-mm. There's seed, potential, age and stage, every age. But we love young people. We invest in them. We put them in godly situations so that they can thrive and they can have something competing against all the other things that overpromise and underdeliver. That they can serve in this house and today be used in a mighty way. Exodus chapter 1, the spirit of the murderer, the spirit of the devil came on Pharaoh and so Pharaoh gave the order to all his people, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. Why? Because he knew God had placed a deliverer among those boys. So he's been wi- trying to wipe out genders and wipe out young people from the beginning of time because it's his native language. It's his persona. It's who he is. It's his nature. He's a murderer. Matthew chapter 2. In Jesus' day, different setting, different time frame, same spirit. Herod, who was the king at that time and who had met with the Magi, which Magi are the three wise men. Remember the Christmas story? So they see the star and they're like, there's a savior born. So they start making the journey. Well, they come into the city and the king finds out they're on their way. And so the king interrogates them and finds out, why are you here? To which they say, there's a savior in this city. So the insecure leader that Herod was and the, the, the spirit of evil and the spirit of devil that the devil that was on his life was like, I got to take that out. That, that's threatening what I want to do. That's threatening uh, the spirit behind what I want to do. I got to take that out. So much so the Bible says the Magi end up leaving a different way. They didn't want to deal with him anymore. But it says Herod gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So he didn't have it pinpointed exactly, but he knew just like Moses, there was a deliverer among these Hebrew folk. There's a a savior among uh, God's people. There's a deliverer. There's a pastor. There's a church planner in the house. There's a faithful wife. There's a mother, not only physically, but spiritually. There's a governor. There's a mayor. And so he's coming at our kids because of who they could be and who they could represent. And the Bible says when the righteous rule The people live in peace. So he tries to take out all the righteous people so that we live in chaos. Are you tracking with me? So we see from the beginning he was a murderer. And that we have to understand that he's trying to kill our kids. He's trying to kill our marriages. He's trying to indoctrinate them with ideologies that are ungodly and unbiblical. And believe narratives that God has never given for their life. So that they'll live in confusion and choose paths and choose places that God never destined for them. But in Jesus' name, at Palm City, we're going to fight for our families. 
We're going to do everything in our power, not because we're great. Remember, we don't fear the devil, not because we're powerful, but he's powerful. He's a way maker. He's a miracle worker. And nothing is impossible for those who believe. Does anybody believe that God still has a plan? If I've got a breath, God can still turn it, no matter what the statistics say and no matter what we see with our physical eyes, that God has a plan. And we see that same spirit, that murderous spirit, behind the slaughtering of millions of babies. That's why we partner with organizations like Oasis Pregnancy Center, because they're standing for life and they're fighting for life. And while we have a chance, we're going to do everything in our power to fight the good fight of faith. To fight people? No, we don't wage war against flesh and blood. But we're coming against authorities and principalities and rulers of darkness, and we're not doing it in our name. We're doing it in the name of Jesus. Because the alternative is not good. And the alternative is that we're under attack. And if you don't counterattack, it does not lessen the fact you're going to be attacked. It's just will you win and be victorious or will you be defeated and your kids will be a statistic. Now, I know you came to church today to be encouraged. And I'm positive that this is positive. And, uh, <laughs> but this is the truth. This is the truth. And we, we speak the truth. So we got to open our eyes. I've got to do it in my home. And I'm asking you to consider doing it in your home. Barna released a study in 2019. It's probably even more skewed now. But that there's a 94% chance if the parents are followers of Jesus, under 18, the kids will become followers of Jesus. Once they leave the home, that statistic goes down from 94% to 6%. That's why we're going after Palm City kids. That's why we're investing in Palm City students. Because the time is short and the time is now. Now, what I'm not saying is that you need to be a perfect family. Because there's not one. And we're not a perfect church because you're all here. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Seriously, when we show up, church no longer becomes perfect. But he's perfect. And we have an opportunity to let him work his perfection in us. And if I do that and you do that and we fight for our families... In Jesus' name, they will not be a statistic. They will accomplish the plans and purposes God has destined for their lives. But you don't have to be a perfect family. That's never been the goal. I want to give us four just principles of strong families. This is the year of strength at Palm City Church. So we're trying to build you with the Bible and now build your relationships. We're doing everything we can to make us have a backbone and have a spine and be strong, bigger on the inside than we are on the outside. Number one... Strong families take responsibility. Step one, we just got to own it. We just got to be intentional. It's the principle of stewardship. One day, praise the Lord, when they leave, and then they move back in, and then they leave again. But we don't have them. They're God's children. He loves them more than we do. And we have them for a set amount of time. And we cannot make them an afterthought. We cannot let hell raise them. We cannot let Hollywood raise them. And we can't let screens raise them. We've got to take responsibility. And if you don't disciple your kids, the world will. The world's waiting. They've got a plan. Sometimes more of a plan than we do. But we have to understand that they're going to be a disciple. Either of Christ or culture. There's no if. There's no neutrality. They are being discipled one way or the other. And it's time for the body of Christ and the people of God who are imperfect to take their rightful stand in faith. Know that they do not have to live in fear. They serve a great and awesome God and fight for your families. 
1 Timothy 4 says, Be an example to all believers in what you say, in the way you live, in your love, your faith, and your purity. Do you remember that game in uh, elementary show and tell? I never had anything cool. I'm, I'm still bitter about that, but I never had anything cool. I usually didn't remember it was show and tell day till that morning, but you had those friends, like they're flexing. Like their dad's a bug man, and he's like in his gear, and, and I forgot to tell my parents, so nobody came, and you're just like, there's no, nothing to show or tell. Um, I hated that, but, but this is how we do it. How do we take responsibility by being perfect? No, that's not the goal. By showing them and telling them, two wings of the same bird, that talk is sometimes cheap, so our actions speak louder than our words, and we know that more is caught than taught. Where are the parents at? They don't do what you say. They do what you do, unfortunately. And every time I see my kids acting a certain way, I first want to get onto them, and then I go, they're probably just reflecting me. But they are influential, and they're looking for role models, people who don't just verbally say the right things, but their nonverbal actions, the way they live, the way they talk, the way their faith is authentic and the purity of their lives is attractive. So we got to show them, but we got to tell them. I want to say this. You can't outsource this to the preacher. You can't delegate this to the youth leader. Husbands, you can't put it on your wife. This is each person, man and wife, assuming the responsibility. We'll support you. We want to partner. We'll make you famous in your home. But you have to take responsibility. That's why Deuteronomy says you must teach God's commandments to your children and talk about them when? All the time. When you're at home, when you're out for a walk, at bedtime, first thing in the morning. Now, Kristen and I try to do this, but we don't like have these formal ways of doing it. We just try to informally, you know, on the way to the bus, on the way to soccer, on the way to school. We just, we try to be consistent and we, we do an okay job. We've got a lot of growing to do, but what we are committed to is open conversations. What we are committed to is risking awkward. Because you open it up to open conversations, things don't get awkward real quick. They got questions. I don't want them to be in the statistics of 59% of them finding their answers to their questions on IG. Because I don't know who created that video. I don't know what their ideology is. I don't know what their agenda is. All I know is what God's plan is for their life. And it's my responsibility in the time I have them to create this narrative where I'm in control with God, trusting God by faith that I'm going to speak a biblical future over their life, and I'm going to not shirk my responsibility. I'm going to assume it. Yep. Number two, strong families encourage growth. Strong families are perfect? Nope. There's not one. If you're not a perfect family, you're in a good position. But we've got to create atmospheres where we encourage their growth. We encourage, we allow them to make mistakes. We get one verse in all of Scripture from the time Jesus was born until his public ministry. One verse. You want to know what Jesus was doing in that time? Growing. Jesus grew, Luke 2.52, in four ways. He grew in wisdom, in stature, in favor with God, in favor with man. Strong families create atmospheres of growth. They encourage growth. First, in wisdom. This is our kids' intellect. This is where we're guarding their minds. We have to set a guard. We can't let culture back up the filthy dump truck of whatever they want to dump, whatever consumption they decide to put in their lives. No, I'm standing at the front. I've opened my eyes. 
I see the attack of the enemy, and I am guarding their minds. They have the mind of Christ. God has put a purpose in there, and I'm not letting another narrative steal the show. I'm teaching them. You've got to teach them to say no to the wrong things and yes to the right things. We've got to help them in their intellect. Jesus grew in wisdom. Number two, in stature. This is us developing their disciplines. This is us not letting them be lazy or always do what they want to do, but we're trying to form their character. So we train our kids how to treat people. We train them how to go to somebody's house, like go out of the house, come in. No, that's definitely not how you're going to do it. Go out again. Now knock this time. Okay, take your shoes off, right? We're, we're teaching them how to honor. When my boys get their plate at dinner before mama or London, you don't, don't get up. What are you doing? Your mama's still in there working. You should be getting drinks. Oh, that's me. No, it's godly. I'm teaching them to value others more than themselves. I'm teaching them. You got to teach them. I'm doing an okay job. I got a lot of work to do. But we have to assume the responsibility and create an atmosphere of growth where we help them know that all values are not created equal. Here's the ones you have to prioritize. There's a lot of things vying for your attention. You're going to have to decide what makes the cut and what doesn't. And it's not always God and bad. Sometimes it's good and bad. Good is the enemy of God sometimes. And so we have to help them know that you've got to prioritize your relationship with God. Dad's faith is not going to be enough for you. You've got to cultivate your own. You've got to understand how to read the word. You've got to pray. You've got to worship. You've got, you've got to get in this space where you're developing your character. Patrick Lencioni, he, a great author, said it this way. If everything's important, then nothing is. So we have to help our kids understand what's really important important in their life and then we got to help them grow in favor with God this is you did a good job you're in church today you're you're helping here great job but we just how many know there's still some work to do we've got to help them grow spiritually we got to help them discover their unique design that they are not a carbon copy what a tragedy it would be if our kids died a carbon copy when God made them an original and why are they so suicidal because they have no vision for their life because they're hopeless and they're bored and they need to know they can belong to a family. They can be a part of a church and they have a family outside of the church that loves them and purpose them. And that the greatest adventure of their life will be following passionately after God. God's not restrictive. God's not boring. I'm having the time of my life. I got stuff I'm in over my head on. But praise God, he's with me. He goes before me. And I sleep good at night, and I wake up with purpose in the morning, even in the midst of all the challenges and the confusion, and they will too, because they're handmade. They're made in the image of God, and until they connect with God, they will wonder, and they will get into things that God did not want them to get into, because they're trying to fill a void that God wants to fill. We see it. David wrote about it in Psalm 139. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. This is the goal of our kids, that they would know this. That I, I, don't, I don't have mistakes. I don't need to change my body image when I look in the mirror. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. 
I don't have that gift and talent, but God has given me gifts and talents that are going to change the world and impact the generation. I'm enough. God made me enough. He made me in his image. And that they would say, your works are wonderful. I know that full well. That's the challenge. They don't know it. This is why we have the growth track. It should have 50 people in it today. But I can't control that decision. It should be both young people and adults who realize if you're miserable, if you're hopeless, if you have no vision, your problems won't go away overnight, but you can get something in your life bigger than your problems. Something that says your life matters. We're better with you. You're gifted and not by a church or not by a pastor, but both of the foundations of the earth. Your God saw you. You're a priesthood. You're a chosen generation. You're gifted by God Almighty himself. He has a unique and a divine purpose for your life, and it will satisfy you. You'll say, my cup runneth over. I've got problems, but I've got blessing in my life. And we didn't create the growth track to be some class or some programming of the church to create an army of volunteers. That's too shallow of a thought. We created it because our kids and ourselves, we need something in our life that says you were designed this way, and your design reveals your destiny. You need to operate in this, and it will give you fulfillment, and it will give you joy forevermore. Oh, I'm preaching today. The last one, he says, you need to grow in favor with man. This is their social circle. Notice I put selecting their friends, because I'm all up in that business. I'm, guard, I'm guarding their minds, and I can, do, I can get them in church, and I can guard their minds, but if they get around the wrong people, look at your life. When were you closest to Jesus? When you were close to people who were close to Jesus. When were you furthest from Jesus? When you was with people not very close to Jesus. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, don't be misled. Bad company ruins good morals. Don't, don't, don't mix. It's not that you're better than them, but you just need to know. Like if you go there, they're more likely to influence you than you influence them. And we have to guard their minds we have to guard their circles. I have to be intentional about their life and do that in such a way. Number three, is this okay, everybody? Okay, number three, we're almost done. Ecclesiastes 4, chap chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. Two are better than one. Why? Because we have to protect each other. Strong families, what do they do? They take responsibility. They encourage atmospheres of growth. And they protect each other. Two are better than one. If one falls down, the other can help him up. But if someone is alone and falls, it's too bad because there is no one to help him. This is why we preach city groups. You need relationships. You don't just need rows. You need circles. You need somebody that, that is investing in your life, somebody that is praying for you by name. We, we need to protect each other. Kristen helps me with my schedule. Right? I, I love what I do, and I will, I will overcommit because I'm like, time is urgent. Let's do it all. She's like, mm, maybe, maybe reintroduce yourself to the kids. They don't remember your name. I'm like, all right, that's cool. That's, that's probably a good idea too, right? But what does she do? Is she coming down on me? Is she, she taking my manhood? No, she's protecting me, and I got to protect her, and we got to protect our kids. And I can't say yes to all events and still do the main thing God's called me to do. And many times we do that, not because we want to go, but we have a fear of man. We fear man more than we fear God. And it's time to put that holy reverence back on God and just let people know, look, 
my yes is yes, my no is no. I've just, I've got to do what's the most priority. I've got to protect my life. I've got to protect my family. We've got to protect our kids when they deal with change. Most people are change averse. The 60% of people statistically do not like change. They don't, don't change anything. But how many know life is nothing but change? The only guarantee I can give you is something's going to change. And that'll mess them up when they're young because they don't know how to handle it. And that's why we say you can process that at your student group. You can process that with a mentor. You can process that with your parents. You can process that with counseling. Let's take the stigma off professional counseling. There's nothing wrong with it if it's Christian-based, right? We, who gave that counselor the mind they have? God. So we've got to help them deal with change. We've got to help them avoid harmful ideas. We've got to protect them. Again, 30,000 hours of screen time by the time they're 18. They've seen a lot of murders. They've seen a lot of ungodly sexuality. They've seen a lot of things that God says is not good for you. And we've got to take that indoctrination and we've got to help them avoid things that will harm them so that they can live in the path of God's life and they can live in the place of his blessing. And we've got to be just as radical about their spiritual health as we are about their physical health. Man, we'll, we'll cut everything if somebody's sick, but we don't give a thought to them just consuming too much. Are we fighting for their physical, spiritual health as much as we are their physical health? We've got to raise that standard. and We've got to over, help them overcome rejection. I can remember my dad. He's a great man. But when I was growing up, he wasn't following God. And I can remember being upset, you know, striking out in the baseball game or just, you know, just upset. And, and, and he would, don't cry. Suck it up, buttercup. What's a buttercup? <laughs> I want one. That actually... But I can remember that. And you know what? I had to go through some healing. I had to have some brothers in my life helping me to process emotions because I was told to stuff them. And we can't raise young boys and young girls. We got to help them. Pro God's emotional. The Bible says Jesus was a man of sorrow. The Bible says be angry and sin not. Emotions are godly. It's what you do with them. And we've got to train a generation that if you've been rejected, that is an emotion. That does not feel good. But I'm telling you, young person, if you'll stay faithful in that rejection, God will give you a redirection. God will have something for you better than what that closed door did not give you. If you'll stay faithful to him. And number four, strong families serve God and others. Are they perfect? Nope. That gives me peace of mind. Because <laughs> it's a hot mess up in my house sometimes. You know, where y'all at? You know, we got, got laundry over here. We got schedules. Like, what in the world's going on? But there's grace and that strong families aren't perfect but they do have priorities and they do make some commitments and nothing takes the place of what's most important and that is God and others hey young person I tell my boys I love you so much but life's not about you I, I, I tell my kids oh my gosh you're amazing but the universe doesn't revolve around you and that God's blessed you in a great way he has but the blessing's not for you we're blessed to be a blessing. That you're God's plan for the earth. And Jesus paid what you couldn't pay, paid for our sin. But then he did empower you to be a witness and to be a blessing. So yeah, you're blessed, but the blessing's not for you. Don't be selfish. Be, be a giver. 
be a lover, be a server of other people, that God wants to do more in your life. And honey, you got to prioritize God. I, I can't be your, your faith alone. you got to prioritize the church. One day I'm not going to drive you. You're going to have to decide to get in your own car and go. And if we don't help our kids make these priorities, if we make church optional, our kids will make it unnecessary. I'm telling you, you'll see this principle in your life. What you do in moderation, they'll do in excess. This is why we got to grapple with our choices. If we dabble in these areas where we're playing with fire, but we're not crossing the line, they'll embrace it. They'll take it where you left it, and they'll take it further. But if we'll train them, knowing God is with us, and it doesn't matter what our past is, but from this day forward, we can be a strong family by helping them serve God and others. Look at this verse I found in 1 Corinthians. Paul said, do you remember Stephanus and his family? They were the first to become Christians in Greece. I love that. That would have been pretty cool. And what are they doing after, after that? Do they just sit on their hands? Prayed the prayer, check. Perfect attendance, check. All good things. But they're spending their life helping and serving. I love that. What a legacy. I, I got a lot of work to do, but I want that to be the narrative people say about my family. Don't you? They, they, they weren't perfect. Lord knows they weren't perfect. But they, it, seemed, it seemed like they spent their lives serving God and others. Look at this in Acts chapter 10. He, Cornelius, and his family were devout and God-fearing. They gave generously to those in need, and they prayed to God regularly. What a family. Were they perfect? No. But they knew what they were devoted to. They knew what was first. And they, they didn't fear God. They weren't afraid of God. But they, they were taught in such a way that they were afraid to try to live without Him. They had a healthy fear of the Lord. They were generous. This, this talent, this blessing that you've given me. The kids will get birthday cards, you know, and somebody will slip them a little something in there. And, and, and then they know I'm coming for them, you know. I'm, and it's not the dad tax, which that's also a thing. I get, I get the first bite of food, candy, all that stuff. I love it. That's the dad tax. But I'll, I'll say, I'll say, oh, what'd you get? And they're reluctant now. The, the, they'll be like, a 20. And I'll be like, oh, cool. What you going to do with that? I'm going to tithe. You know, I'm like, it is a joy to give. Why are you so upset? It's because they don't know they cannot give God. They haven't learned that, so i got to train them in that. And I'll say, okay, oh, that's awesome. How much is the tithe? You know, like $2. I'm like, which two? The first two, Dad. That's right, because it's about the first. And when somebody's sick in the family, I'll say, hey, pray for your sibling. And I can pray for them, but pray for them. Why? Because the Bible says pray for the sick. I, I don't know if God's going to heal them, but that ain't up to me. Out comes his department. Obedience is mine. Hey, pray for your brother. Ask God to heal him. I, I'm trying to teach them faith in that moment. I, I'm trying to show them that there's a God who loves them. And they want to be encouraged and they want to be trained in the way they should go. We got to do what Nehemiah did. We got to look over, survey the land, take our stand, not live in fear. Know our God is greater than our enemy. And in Jesus' name, fight for our families. Are you ready, church? Are you ready to get your fight back? Are you ready to fight the right battles?